You're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Listen in and learn alongside me as I interview some of the sharpest minds ranging from economists, software developers, investors, entrepreneurs, and writers. Hey guys, my guest today is Laulu Oshuntakun, also known as Roast Beef. He is the CTO of Lightning Labs and a highly talented developer, leading a star team working on the Lightning Network. I recently had the chance to meet Laulu and Connor Fromnecht, also of Lightning Labs, while they were in Australia for the recent Lightning Summit and showed them around Sydney for a day, which was a great learning experience for me. Both really cool, talented and hardworking guys. Just a quick note before the interview, please note this one is more technical and not suitable for a lightning newbie. If you're new, I recommend first listening to certain earlier episodes of my podcast, particularly episode 23 with Rusty Russell for a great intro overview on lightning and also episode 9 with Brian Vu. Once you've listened to these interviews, I think you'll be in a better position to listen to this one with Laulu. Also, apologies and just a caution that there was some scratching noise. I've done my best to minimize that and cut it out in post-production, but there was only so much I could do. Also, this interview is quite fast-paced, so I recommend listening with headphones and not speakers for this one. Hi, Lalu. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, so uh, it's been a while since uh, the Lightning Summit was on, and now you uh, are back home. How's things back home? Uh, not bad. Just, you know, the usual back to work. Uh, yeah, I mean, just just the regular stuff. But Australia was great also. Like, I've never been there and I was like, wow, this is actually, yeah, it's like spring here. This is different. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so, look, Lali, I know you told me on the day, but I just thought it would be, uh, I thought it was an entertaining story. Yeah. So, if you could just maybe tell the listeners, what is the origin story of the roast beef name? Okay, yeah, yeah. I feel like I've, you know, told this a few times. I guess it's never really been written down. But uh, yeah, I mean, so like roast beef came about, like, I think when I was in like ninth or 10th grade. So maybe this is like when I was like 15 or 16 or so. Uh, I was basically like, I, I was taking World of Warcraft at the time. And like at that point, like Blizzard actually kicked everyone off like the private servers I was, I was on. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll actually go on to the public servers. And I needed kind of like a character name. I remember like I just got back from you know, football practice. And my mom got me some Subway. So I was kind of like, you know, sitting there in my computer trying to make my, my uh, name for my, my uh, like, you know, like my Orcarenta or on the game itself and like i was like putting a bunch of different names i couldn't get anything going and i was like okay well you know i'm eating a roast beef sandwich right now you know i had a subway club i put in roast beef with the tea that was taken i was like damn what am i gonna do now and i took off the tea and then it wasn't taken and then from there on like you know the past like 10 years i'm always roast beef and everything <laughs> like, i'm roast beef on everything other than instagram there's this like norwegian kid that has it i've mentioned him a few times i guess he's not gonna give it up but if you see a roast beef on the internet it's probably me i know it doesn't yeah. even doesn't he know who you are come on <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't know the best part about roast beef i think it's just it's just kind of like funny it's kind of like you know we're doing all these like serious cryptocurrency bitcoin work it's like oh roast beef it's like i don't know i, I think it makes me laugh which is uh which is why i like it <laughs> <laughs> i love it yeah, yeah so i mean look you just came back from i mean sort of roughly a month ago november in 2018 we had the australian lightning summit in adelaide so can you maybe just give a give an overview on you know what it is and what happened uh, yeah, so basically the Lightning Summit, uh, this time was in Adelaide. So like, and it, some people may, may not know, but originally we had a summit in, uh, you know, in Scaling Bitcoin. This was in 2016, Scaling Bitcoin Milan. We kind of like, you know, we're at uh, the office of like BHB. 
and at that point, you know, at that point, like we all kind of be working on kind of like 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 lightning completions ourselves. We decided that okay, is this a good point to actually you know kind of like synchronize and just make sure they're actually droppable. So that was like a two day thing or so, and we decided okay, we're going to do it again. The point of this one was kind of like not really like the super far off like next gen lightning stuff, but kind of like the things that we all know that like you know maybe really need to get in. You know, things kind of like dual thunder, you know, splicing amp and things like that as well. So it was kind of like a two day thing. We talked. I mean, so mostly it was kind of deciding like what was what, what, what people were interested in getting in. We kind of going to leave the kind of like specifications on the mailing list, and right now we've launched. Traffic, traffic on mailing list right now about kind of like you know the nitty-gritty details of things that are actually going to go in next time but, but i thought i thought it was great uh you know adelaide was a great town like uh, i've never been to australia and we, we had some time to check out some other cities as well but uh, i thought it was like a pretty productive trip and like we actually got a lot more done than i thought because like initially we had this like really really long agenda i was like damn like are we gonna get there everything like you know realistically in two days but at the end we even had like time left over we just got like some beer and like okay well you know <laughs> great job everybody so that was great fascinating and then what was the most exciting in terms of the technology coming out of the lightning summit uh yeah so some of the some cool stuff like uh so i think we actually kind of like had this like cool kind of like mining protocol that i didn't realize was actually powerful before uh, so like you know that i think pretty cool because like that can add some increased privacy into the system itself another cool thing is kind of like there were some measures added for, for light clients so things where you can read like maybe you're watching the chain you can kind of get like an SVB proof that the channel was closed and uh, you know, a bunch of like other like quality server stuff. Probably the biggest thing that I thought was important was kind of like fixing some issues with the way that we handle fees in the protocol. Whereas before, basically, we had to kind of like you know guess ahead of time what the fees were going to be, and you know that we that like you know is that something actually we didn't really uh, anticipate would be like a huge issue. Once we actually went to mainnet, it was a big issue because you know implications were actually kind of like disagreeing what fees you know we, we actually need to have. When, when you disagree on fees, then well, you have like a lot of issues. So instead, we're going to move to protocol where instead of like you know agreeing on fees ahead of time, you can basically add on fees after the fact, right? And this is going to be via kind of like a, a child's pay. For, Child, child page parent type thing where you can basically have like an anchor output and you can kind of like bring down the transaction after the fact. So I think that's a probably like a, one of the biggest quality of service things I think we're gonna, we're, we're gonna get out of here. And I'm pretty excited about that because like yeah, I mean fees fees in general can be pretty hairy and this kind of like sidestep it all into the last moment, which I think is gonna be a big difference. Yeah. So in terms of that child pace for parent uh, concept, what will it help smooth the experience on? Will it basically be helping you close a channel? Uh, yeah. So basically it's helping you close your channel. So, so right now, like, uh, because we have to agree on fees ahead of time, you basically need to guess ahead of time, like kind of like what the fee will be when you want to go into the chain. And in the future, you know, the fee rates could spike, right? So the worst case is basically, you know, I have a fee rate and like, let's say I have like 10 Satoshi's a byte and all of a sudden the fee spiked to like maybe 70 Satoshi's a byte. All of a sudden I can't get in and I can't actually re-sign them. I can't re-sign my transaction if the other party's offline as well, right? So maybe, you know, if they were online, I could basically issue like a new kind of like update fee in the protocol. We could raise the fee. But if they're offline, all of a sudden I'm stuck with this low fee of transaction. The other thing is that like, because uh, the outputs are like CSV t- towards me, I can't actually broadcast that, that and, and, and anchor it down myself, right? Because, you know, CSV only starts taking once it actually hits the chain. So as a result, you can kind of be in a weird situation where it's like, you know, it's very, very difficult to guess, fee to ha- get, guess fees ahead of time. But, you know, the protocol now, there's a bunch of good, good, you know, actually hooks in the protocol to allow you to actually, you know, uh, when, when you overshoot fees or undershoot it, you, you can kind of correct that. So, uh, so now we, we don't really worry, we're, we don't really, really worry about fees as much because now at this point we can just know, okay, well, after I broadcast it, I can regulate my fee as much as I want to. Fantastic. And then could you maybe give a bit of a background on AMP and what changed in terms of AMP from the summit? Oh, cool. Yeah. So, uh, so AMP is kind of like this thing, uh, it's called like atomic multiple payments. And it's basically like a method to allow you to kind of like shard payments in the network. So right now, like on lightning, like, you know, let's say you have like five channels, you can, you can only actually, you know, fully send or receive with one of those channels, right? Which is pretty limiting. So let's say, you know, I had like, you know, five $10 channels, all of a sudden, you know, I can't actually just send $50, right? I can only just send that, that $10 at once. What AMP lets you do is it basically lets you kind of like combine the liquidity of all those channels and like actually push or receive them all at once. This is actually a big benefit for the network, the network as a whole, because all of a sudden now we can, we can now more effectively kind of like utilize liquidity 
within the within the channels. And also, it's, it's pretty good for uh, kind of like you know routing those because now like larger channels are less important. They're less important because now like you know, with larger channel, the channel you know I would I would only be able to send a payment if I could like uh, actually route entirely through that channel. But now I can basically share my payments amongst a bunch of other like smaller channels, right? So we had the original version of AMP, uh, which was kind of like uh, you know based on this like secret sharing mechanism, which would allow the receiver only to pull um, you know, the payment only once all the pieces got there. Then some people started to work on a different version of mailing list, which uh, is kind of like called like base AMP or like you know MPP or something like that, which is a little bit simpler and it kind of like reuses the same payment hash. The idea there is that like you can actually still you know maintain kind of this invoicing protocol that we have going on here, which you can with base AMP as well too. But I think this is probably going to be one of the biggest things as far as kind of like quality of service routing the network. Because all of a sudden now like I can like utilize the full bandwidth of the network at any given moment rather than like being restricted to a single path. And uh, this is also pretty good for privacy as well, because now, like, you know, all the payments are now, like, more sharded. And, like, you can't really, you can't as easily strictly correlate, like, a larger payment, because now I will see, like, you know, 10 or so payments come by, and they may all be, you know, from different payments, or they could all be, be, be to the same payment itself. Right. And obviously, my, my understanding on this is uh, not as deep as yours. Um, <laughs> but with the concept of splicing, which I understand as resizing the channels that you already have, yep. it's sort of like AMP is like an alternative to that because you don't need to resize the channels, you just use multiple ones? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, so you can say that like, uh, you know, AMP is good because it reduces, reduces the pressure on the network to have like really, really large channels, right? So before, like, let's say I want to send a thousand dollar payment, I would need like a, you know, a much larger channel to send on that. But now I can maybe send my thousand dollar payments over a series of hundred dollar channels, which is pretty good. So splicing and AMP, they're, they're complementary. So like, you know, AMP lets you do, I mean, so splicing lets you do some cool things where I think one of the biggest things it'll let people do is like, you know, on the UIs right now, maybe most of the UIs have like two balances. Maybe they have a kind of like an opt-in and on-chain component. And that's because like, you know, you're coins are in two different areas. With splicing, you, you can kind of like, you know, really combine them to like one single balance because all of a sudden now I can send a payment outside of my channel. Uh, it, so I don't really have to close close my close my channel to so send out a payment. It's also a case where it's like I maybe even want to like have most of my like my hot water coins in a channel because now like they're kind of like more liquid. I can move them a lot more easily. Another cool thing that splicing allows I can effectively give you an address and you can kind of like deposit into my channel as well. So it's a thing about kind of like con- contracting the size of the channels. Uh, but AMP is more about kind of like routing throughout the network itself. Um, but I, but I think you know splicing is pretty important for kind of like wallets in general because it really improves the UX of wallets. Because all of a sudden now I can like you know instantaneously move in and out of my channels at will, and all of a sudden now it becomes like you know like the line between between layer one and layer two kind of blurs a little bit more. Where it's kind of like well this is my wallet. My wallet can move you know you know small amounts quickly or maybe a little bit larger amounts a little bit slower depending on kind of like the fee thing. So I think at that point like once we have that in, it, it kind of be a thing where you know users can, can, can trade off kind of like fees for time. As in you know maybe you pay a little, you pay uh, you know higher fees and it's going to be a little bit slower, or you pay more fees and going to be a little bit faster. Those are kind of like ratios that you can, you can modify depending on what you know what you actually want to do with your payments. Right, I see. So again, uh, my understanding is not as great as yours. So if you could help me on this, yep. the. AMP component does not require to to do an AMP payment is all on Lightning, right? Yeah. But to do a splicing that requires an on chain payment. Is that what you're trying to get at there uh, as well? Yeah, that's true, right? So, so like a splicing splicing attempt would basically um, so what it does more or less it basically like closes a channel and opens a new channel in a single transaction, right? So I basically like you know broadcast a transaction that spends the old multi sig and then creates a new multi sig and that new multi sig is the two hundred two for the brand new channel. But the cool thing is that you know do it, doing that transaction we can basically add and remove funds from the channel itself, right? So let's say I wanted to like you know pay my friends, but also maybe deposit to an exchange. I could do that all in a single transaction. So what what happens now is that like every single Lightning implementation over time will kind of have like a pretty cool like batching engine implementation, something we're working on right now in LND as well, where you can basically kind of like feed in all these transactions that you you do otherwise and coalesce them into a single transaction anytime you're going to splice in and out or any other transaction on chain. So it's it's going to make things a little bit more efficient as well because now we we have this kind of like you know spot that we can all kind of synchronize on and we can send payments uh, or receive payments you know via a single single transaction on chain. It's, it's a pretty cool feature because now it's like, you know, batching will be kind of like a native thing in most implementations. And also in the future, whenever we get kind of like, um you know, signature aggregation, then things will be a lot cheaper and a lot smaller from there on out. 
Excellent. So um, could you maybe just outline a little bit for me around using batching within LND? Uh, yeah. So basically, um, so something that we've, we've been working on for a bit, uh, one of our engineers, uh, Yost, has kind of like had this idea when he, when he joined, was like, well, let's make this kind of like new form of sweeping, right? So one thing that you know, Lightning implementations need to do is that they need to ensure that they're able to kind of like sweep outputs from CSV or kind of like CLTB transactions, right? So it's, it's like a pretty, very, very basic thing to do. Initially, we have something called the UTXO nursery, which is kind of like a thing where it would like incubate outputs until they're mature, you know, because it was a CSV or whatever else. But then we realized we can kind of like generalize that a little bit more to kind of like what we call like a sweep with an LND. And the cool thing about this is that like uh, this is kind of a system where like every single block is going to basically ask you know anything in, in the code base like if it actually wants to sweep a transaction or not. And this is cool because all of a sudden now like we can use this as a primary synchronization point. So like let's say we're, we're doing a splicing transaction and we, you know I had like channel A and I wanted to add more funds to it, but then let's say at the same time we had a request to make a channel B, right? Rather than like doing a channel like uh, uh, a transaction for splicing and then from opening the new channel, we can combine those into a single transaction, right? And then even further, let's say that I wanted to send a payment out at the same time, I can basically combine that into a single transaction itself too. So like the sweeper in LND will basically become kind of like this really cool bashing engine where ideally like LND has one transaction a block and that one transaction is doing things like opening tra- opening channels, closing channels, sweeping HDLC, sweeping the CSV, sending payments and doing everything in that single transaction. And this is pretty good for us because we're, we're going to save on fees obviously because we have less transactions on chain. And also like, you know, the system as a whole is more efficient because the, the, every single transaction is more bashed and you can save more money, uh, you know, when you actually bash transactions as a whole. Excellent. And you mentioned a UTXO nursery. Could you outline a little bit around what is that? Concept. Oh yeah, so this is something I made made like a bit back, and so like uh, whenever you close a channel, whenever you, you force code a channel on uh, on Lightning, you you, you have like a, a time lock output, right? As the person actually force code the transaction, and this transaction, this time lock output has like a CSV value, and CSV meaning that like there will be like a delay until you can sweep it, right? So I, back in the day, I guess this is like 2015, 2016, I was like, well, let's make a UTX nursery. And the idea is that like anytime you close a channel, you give the output to the nursery, and the nursery kind of like watches over the output until it's mature. And by mature, I mean that can actually be swept, right? We can do the same thing as well for CLTV transactions. As in, like, before we can broadcast it, we give it to the nursery, and the nursery, like, handles kind of, like, figuring out, like, when the actual maturity height is itself. It was, it, was, it was a pretty cool abstraction that, like, worked at that point, but we're kind of, like, working to kind of generalize, generalize a little bit more. But, like, I think the naming kind of made sense. It's kind of like, well, I have, like, a kid output, maybe it's in the crib, and eventually graduates to kindergarten, and kindergarten is when you get swept into the wallet at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I suppose it's also from a privacy point of view, that's an improvement as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we can do some really cool things as well with that because like in the future, whenever we move to kind of like having channels either be, you know, two of two ECDSA or two of two Schnorr, that's really cool because at that point, like every single channel, uh, you know, if assuming, you know, you're doing uh, cooperative closes where you're just like signing the multi-sig, looks like any other regular payment, right? So right now, like, you know, uh, channels and lightning are pretty identifiable because you have like a 202 uh, multi-sig. And we're really the only people that are using 202 multi-sig in, you know, witness script hash with all the new SegWit stuff, right? But in the future, that's going to look kind of like a regular witness key hash, you know, using ECSA or even kind of like a new witness program type using Schnorr. The cool part about this is that now, like anytime you open a closed channel, it looks like a regular payment, right? So let, let's say I'm doing like a splicing operation and maybe I have like four inputs and I, maybe I, I add some output and I have my new multi-sig. That looks like more, maybe more kind of like a send mini or a coin join, right? So now we're basically increasing the anonymity set of lighting users and also regular users for Bitcoin payments as well. So it's a world where maybe it may be the case that kind of like right. smart contract and regular payments are kind of like indistinguishable, which is great, which is really good for privacy because all of a sudden now like the anonymity set is basically everyone using either Bitcoin or Lightning. And you know, in the future, if say it's going to become more popular, it's it's a lot it's a lot harder to kind of like tell things apart. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, and then probing. Can you tell us a little bit about this concept of okay? So you've got different channels across the whole network and you as one node don't necessarily know what's going in some other area of the network. Yeah. How, how, how does probing help? Uh, so, I mean, so probing can help in terms of kind of like, um, 
I say it probably helps the most of kind of like weeding out like you know poor nodes or poor channels, right? So this is something that kind of like Alex Bosworth, Alex Bosworth had been working on for a little bit. Uh, basically, like we're having the system where we're kind of like probing that work slowly to figure out like where the bottlenecks are and also like which node's actually viable, right? So if you can know ahead of time that like you know Bob you know always drops payments or he's ever really online, you can avoid them altogether, right? And also you may be you may be kind of like able to wiggle out different nodes to force them to close their channels if the channels themselves aren't really being managed effectively, right? So you can say that like if we can give people some of this data, they can have like you know better pathfinding attempts because all of a sudden they know which paths are viable, which ones are not viable. And this is just kind of like a good way to kind of like be doing like a ping throughout the system. So you can say that eventually, like, you know, so, 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 there's something called Tor and they kind of have like a, like a directory authority. And what they do is they, they more or less kind of like go, go around different nodes, like, you know, meta event, things like that, latency. Also maybe, you know, kind of like stop people trying to do DOS, things like that. Uh, you know, this is kind of similar to that as in like, we may be kind of, or I mean, you know, other people in the network, I'm seeing it like on, on my truck reminder right now. They can kind of be probing people slowly to see if the channel is actually good or not. So I would say it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's it's basically improving the network by, by removing, you know, poor candidates effectively. And if you can ignore this candidate when, you, when you're doing your pathfinding, your your you know your route will be a lot more successful and you'll be able to like do things a lot more easily. Right. So it overall improves the strength or the quality of your experience when you interact with Lightning Network. Exactly. And so my understanding yeah, right. And so my understanding I think from listening potentially to I think this was noted with Rusty and Christian yep. and um, they were mentioning around this concept that came up that you want to try to preserve privacy where you can mm-hmm. uh, in the Lightning Network and then only where that where there starts to be many routing failures, that's when you start to introduce more and more sort of slightly weakening, you know, slightly weakening the privacy such that you can improve the experience. Can you chat a little bit on that? Um, yeah, I guess maybe I'm not sure exactly what they're talking about there, but I mean, it's a thing where, um, you know, like VR probing, you can basically... Um, uh, you know, more, more or less kind of like weed, weed out bad nodes, right? Uh, it, it's this thing where it's like, I think they were talking about a thing where uh, you can kind of like identify like your probing attempt as kind of like a probing attempt. Therefore, people may not really worry about a time lock uh, in that. The other cool thing about like probing is that like, you know, it kind of like adds cover traffic for the network as a whole, right? So if like every single node kind of like randomly like sends a payment to some, some other node that they know is going to fail, that's kind of like extra cover traffic for like regular payments, uh, regular payments, right? Because even with any writing, you still have a bunch of kind of like, you know, vectors as far as like timing and uh, t- timing and packing analysis. But if there's kind of like a steady state of like volume on the network, it's a little bit harder to kind of like tell that someone sent a payment or not. So you can imagine like, let's say there were no payments going on the network at all, like only one person sent a payment, that that may be more identifiable to kind of like someone that's monitoring a bunch of links versus kind of like there's kind of like a, you know, bunch of noise going on, everyone's sending payments back and forth and you slip your own payment underneath there. So this is something that that mixnets kind of mixnets do, uh, to, as, which is which is another way to kind of like have uh, you know privacy preserving communication on the internet, where they basically have much like covered traffic going back and forth, and they do things like where they have like random delays, and like they may even like add dummy traffic. So I think these are things that Lightning knows and tells starts to do, where I may just start to kind of like randomly route payments towards myself in kind of like a circular fashion to like uh, just to ensure that like uh, they can't really tell when I'm receiving payment myself, and they don't really know who the destination of the origin is. So it's kind of like a supplemental thing on top of like the things that we have already as far as like ending routing and kind of like picking your peer to be distributed right um okay and now another big topic that i wanted you to touch on was wombology <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah can you uh give us a background what is wombology uh, well wombology is the study of wombo and wombo is the opposite of mini uh <laughs> and it's, it's basically from this episode on spongebob where it's like he has like mermaid man's like belt and like he's like trying to use it and patrick's like 
hey, you're doing it wrong. We have a set of mini. You want to, you want to set to W for Wumbo? And he's like, what's Wumbo? Like, well, Wumbo is like, you know, I Wumbo, you Wumbo, the study of Wombology. It basically just means big, right? It's the opposite of mini. And it's kind of like a joke that we developed in terms of like making uh, channel size a little bit larger. Some, some people may not know is like right now on the network, we kind of have like two limits as far as payments. The first one is a limit on channel size, which is 0.16 BTC. The other one is a limit on the number, the like largest payment, which is 0.04 BTC. These are kind of said initially back in the day is, is a more or less kind of like trading wheels because obviously like things are still like very, very new. We're also kind of figuring things are figuring things out ourselves. We also didn't really want people to kind of like throw a bunch of money into the network before things were really robust. But I think maybe we're kind of like getting a little more comfortable with our implementations. And in the future, we may have this kind of like special feature bit, right? So on the network, whenever two nodes connect, they can exchange information, kind of like telling each other like what what new extensions they support. So let's say like, you know, I connect to you and I sell, you had the Wumbo bit set, which means you like have, have big channels and I had the Wumbo bit set as well. Then at that point, we may be able to make a, like a one BTC channel, you know, which is like, you know, far larger than the actual current limit on this network right now. And so it's a thing where it's like, because it's double opt-in, like only once two implementations really agree that they're ready to support it, we'll actually, we'll actually roll out. And because like we have these feature bit system, it's pretty easy to introduce new features in, in the future because all of a sudden we just say, okay, well, bit 25 means this. And then at that point we can go on from there. Fascinating. And so the growth of the network has been quite a lot over the last few months. Have you guys done much in terms of benchmarking on how, how the network operates uh yeah i mean so i guess we're doing two things one of the things we're doing right now is like you were saying we're kind of like uh you know poking different nodes around the network to kind of like see really like you know like how how readily are they able to accept payments also forward them uh you know successfully themselves there's something that's pretty cool because now like we can kind of like develop you know, more or less like a framework to kind of like analyze different nodes in the network in order to like maybe suggest channels uh, to different users at that point. And that's kind of like more of like a quality of service thing. You know, it may be the case that even though you have like a lot of BTC on the network, you may not be effectively like actually ma- managing your routing node, right? If you're not effectively manage- managing your routing node in terms of like liquidity and also like balancing your channels, you may not actually be a good candidate, right? So like that's one of the things that I think people have you know trouble with at the times. Like just because a node has more channels and like maybe has like more BTC onto the network doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good, good candidate for routing nodes, right? So like, you know, um, um, that's, that's kind of like a, a thing of information asymmetry and kind of like the skill of writing an operator and also like how aware they are, you know, of writing those themselves. And like I said, on the other point, as far as the performance, I mean, so back in the day, I did a bunch of kind of like estimates on like L&D or actual, actual, actual benchmarks. And this is when the protocol was a little bit different. Like it basically had, um, you know, more of a, uh, you know, window for like having, you know, for like kind of like uh, pipelining throughput. I think at that point, like I got like two, two or three K uh, transactions per second. On my laptop in LND, I think these days because we add a lot, lot more persistence and there's a lot, lot, lot more kind of redundant checks. Maybe it's around like 800, 800, eight or nine uh, hundred, uh, I mean, or around 900, 900 transactions per second on a single channel. But I mean, that's one thing to where it's like it's like on a single channel and like the way LND is designed, it can kind of like really scale across all cores, you know, pretty easily. It's one of the things where it's like right now our main bottleneck as far as like forwarding throughput is just kind of like disk IO, which means like you're writing to disk a lot, and that's not really optimized at this point. So uh, I think you know those are pretty good numbers, just because like things are just not not optimized at all. I think it's going to be the case that like only once we actually see us like reaching those numbers on like a, on like a regular basis, will we, will we actually go down and like try to optimize that stuff out right now? Because you know beyond that, there's kind of like a lot of uh, you know safety things that we're working on right now as far as like safety and you know quality of service reliability of LND itself. At that point, once all that's done, like you know every no- people's, people's nose are falling over because like you know there's some new streaming video Candy Crush game or something like that. Then we'll actually go in there and you know kind of like tweak things up a little more, optimize it. Right, and so with that 900 transactions per second was that just uh using an lnd in a test environment with another lnd or? uh yeah yeah so yeah it was just like it was just two lnds at that point and with, with, with pretty kind of like negligible uh, latency but actually doing, doing like real disk io and then you know if you put it on the network it, it gets you know similar to the thing to that but i guess there's two things to point out is like right now they're kind of like two kind of like caps on the protocol one of which is kind of like a cap on the number of outstanding htlcs which is the number of kind of like pending htlc that you can have that aren't yet settled right 
So you can understand, like, you know, if this number was like 10, well, okay, that's going to really, really reduce our throughput. But right now it's around like, like 900 above, um, 900 cumulatively, which makes it a little bit better. But, you know, that number can be, can be bumped up in the future. Another thing that, you know, that was in the past uh, before we kind of like just some specification stuff is that like in the past, like you, you'd be able to have uh, kind of like multiple unrevoked commitment transactions, which would let you kind of like pipeline these updates a lot more quickly, pretty much the way that TCP sliding window works. That was kind of like removed, you know, for simplicity, but that may come back, uh, you know, at, at some point in the future. Right. And then... What about benchmarking from a routing success or failure? You know, what what percentage of payments successfully route? Uh, have have you guys? I assume you guys have done some uh, benchmarking on that also. Uh, yeah, I mean, so do you mean like nodes that are actually on the network, uh, like this people that people are operating, or? Because sometimes one of the angles people say is, oh, look, I tried to send this payment, but I just get all these routing failures. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, so like, I feel like that's more of an issue, again, talking about like, you know, the kind of like skill of a routing operator where like, like I was saying, like, it's not really at the state yet where you kind of like just like dump money on there and like set and forget, right? You have to be actively managing your channels. So one thing we're kind of like, you know, looking at the network right now, we're trying to like identify actually, uh, you know, like good nodes as in they're actually like able to like route payments like, pretty effectively. And something that Alex Bosworth had been working on in the past like few weeks or so. Uh, he probably has better results than I do right now, but uh, but yeah, he, he'd probably be a better person, you know, to inquire uh, the way the way things are going on right now. But yeah, I mean, so uh, it, like typically most of those issues are just kind of like nodes not being down or people just not really like you know balancing their channels effectively. But in the future, we'll, we'll have like you know a lot more tools coming out to make these things a lot easier to use. And also, I think like, the thing right now where it's like there are a lot of regular operators that they're really really excited about stuff, but maybe they don't really understand company implications or really like what to do or kind of like what all like little settings do things like that. But I think with time, as we get more tools out there and also kind of like more guys resources you know all that will, will improve uh, you know pretty, pretty a good bit yeah and then is the idea that autopilot will also help do some of that channel management as well in terms of rebalancing splicing that kind of thing uh yeah yeah definitely definitely so i mean so kind of like the autopilot system that we have right now is one that i wrote like you know a bit back it's like it's pretty basic uh you know all basically kind of like what it does is try to like tend the network to kind of like a scale-free uh scale-free network which means that there's gonna be kind of like a low degree low low degree uh with the network which means that like you know there'll be kind of like a uh like the, the actual path length for like the shortest path it should be pretty low something we're doing right now within the, within the company uh lighting labs we're, kind of, we're really working kind of like moving that to kind of like the next generation of the system is something that kind of uh you know like one of our engineers johan and then also uh you know alex and Yost uh, have been working on it themselves. And the idea is that, like, so right now, the system basically has, like, a single heuristic. We're working on, on modifying that to, like, that, how it to be, like, to be multi-heuristic. So rather than, like, looking, like, you know, one feature, one attribute, it'd be, it'd be kind of, like, go go on a series of other attributes themselves. And there'll also be ability to kind of, like, add your own external scores into the system itself, uh, which will let you kind of, like, add supplement, supplementary information that may not be, you know, c- completely identifiable from the graph itself. But in the future, like, Autopilot will definitely grow to be doing things like, you know, actively managing, managing channels. Because maybe the case, let's say I have, like, channel A, Channel A itself, you know, isn't really getting that much volume, and like I really have money, a lot of money in there. But, but Channel B is doing a lot. But Channel B maybe, uh, you know, isn't isn't is able to capture as much volume because maybe it doesn't really have enough liquidity in the channel. So what the system can do, it can identify that and say, okay, well, I will take money away from Channel B and put it towards Channel. Uh, sorry, take money away from Channel A and put it, put it towards Channel B, maybe in the hope that like I can actually uh, get a lot more money out, out of Channel B versus Channel A. So it, it'd be kind of be more more or less kind of like a resource management engine. For, for both your channels uh, and also uh, your payments itself. The cool thing is that you can actually, like, you know, put, you, you can actually change data between these two systems as far as, like, you know, making channels and also sending payments because there may be some overlap in there as, like, maybe someone that's, you know, good uh, as far as, like, always, like, write up on payments pretty effectively. Maybe they also get candidate open a channel directly too. And also related to channel management, and you were mentioning there around transferring fee, um, you know, the balance across channels. Yep. Another concept there is the um, which I'm sure you've you know you've spoken about is around the dual funding aspect of it. So is the idea that once dual funding comes in, that would be the new default for channel opening? 
Uh, I, I, I don't think so necessarily. I, I feel like dual funding is one of the things that people think is going to like solve all the issues. And like, actually like, you know, the initial version of L and D, the first thing I coded was dual funding channels, right? So L and D today supports dual funding channels. We even have tests for it and everything on our networks, which not really yet exposed on the, uh, you know, on the network uh, or, or on the RPC. Because the thing about dual funding channels, like dual funding channels like require a little bit more kind of like upfront negotiation. Cause you know, it's the case that, like, you know, even if like, I think, you know, you're a good person or whatever else. I may not really, like, I, might, I may not want to actually put money up, money, money up in the dual funding channel. Because at that point, like if you go down, like, you know, my, my coins are actually locked there too. Well, the difference is like for a single friend, for single, for a single friend channel, I can basically just instantly open a channel to anyone else. And there's really not really much thought that they're going to put in because they're going to they're accept the channel. While for a dual funded channel, because like you both have money up, it's a little bit more of kind of like a, you know, more of like an involved relationship, right? You may not want to accept dual funded channel from just anybody, but you may be accepting a single friend channel from a single person. But the other thing as well is that I think, um, you know, there really aren't as good as tools there for people to kind of like do re- rebalancing the channel and managing liquidity. But like the past few months, we've exposed some tools in LND or kind of like some RPCs. And we've seen people start to actually like write, you know, a bunch of open source tools start start do some of these things. We'll have some coming out ourselves. So I think dual funded channels are important, but like I think they'll probably be used more you know heavily amongst kind of like you know other businesses or exchanges rather than kind of like on on the network in the, in the wild. Just because like they do require a little more, more of kind of like a you know thoughtful relationship between the two parties compared to a single partner channel. I see. I see. Uh, okay. And so one of the arguments I've seen by this uh, computer science professor, I think he's, I can't, I'm not sure if I'll pronounce his name correctly, George Stolfi. Uh, he basically, <laughs> yeah, now he made an argument that routing won't be feasible. So he was trying to say, oh, look, finding a viable payment path in the LN requires knowing the channel states, which are unknown by definition. There's not enough data to solve the pathfinding problem, no matter how, no matter how many developers you put to work on it. Now, Greg Maxwell did weigh in with his thoughts on this, which is, as I understand it, it's essentially the point that Lightning is not dependent on absolutely perfect routing. Therefore, you don't need to know all that global information and you don't need it to be completely current. So do you have similar thoughts or would you articulate a different answer to that challenge? Uh, yeah, you know, I think he's totally right. You know, because like, unlike Bitcoin, like every single Reddit node does not need to have like the actual same view of the network as a whole, right? So if you ever seen any of these explorers, you kind of like see that some of them have different numbers than others. That's because like you don't need a global view of the network. You don't need you don't also need like synchronized view amongst every single node in order to actually do these in order to actually do writing uh, you know, uh, successfully. So I think I think it's I think it's a thing where he's like looking after this kind of like really idealized model, but like it's one of the things where like in practice like that stuff doesn't really matter, right? Like you know there are a number of kind of like impossibility th- theorems and kind of like you know CS or things that are kind of like you know deem like very very hard problems but it's typically the case that in practice if you add you know things like a little bit of randomness then it's fine right you may not be able to find like the optimal theoretically optimal solution but you have like an okay solution which works which work in practice and is okay it's one of those things where it's i think it's also funny where it's like whenever you're working on a problem someone tells you it's impossible you're like well i guess i'll do work a little bit hard on this right so uh yeah so i think it's a case where you don't need you don't need global information because like at that point you can make adjustments right because you can kind of like iterate and kind of like make adjustments and kind of like you know feel a little more feel a little bit more out of the network you can more effectively route so you think of it like right now we have something mission, something in L and D that we call mission control, and it basically learns from from like your past attempt like which routes are more likely to be to be effective in the future. So once again, it's kind of like a pretty basic version that we have right now. But some of our engineers, uh, you know, Johan and uh, Yost, are working on a more kind of advanced system, which will kind of like you know factor in the probabilities that like certain routes work well based on the past experience. So it's one of the things where you don't need you know you don't need global information, and also like if you remember basically which routes worked before, you can kind of like you know you bias yourself to go into Bob again because you did did things more successful in the past, then you can have like a lot more, uh, you know, you have like much higher success rate when you're actually doing writing. Right. And you mentioned there, there's also the potential 
of retrying. So you could try the payment, it might fail, but yeah. then you can retry and we'll find another route. Exactly. And so it's one of the things like, you know, just, just like on the internet, right? Like whenever I'm writing, I'm um, sending the packet somewhere, like it may have failed like, you know, three or, three or four different times versus, you know, either due to like timeouts or queues were full or something like that, or like, you know, uh, maybe like routes change, but to the end user, that was really never surfaced, right? So I think it's, it's the same thing in Lightning, right? Even though like you may, you, may, you didn't pay, maybe you had like five attempts and like the last one worked, like that's okay, right? As long as that like the latency, you know, isn't super perceivable for the end user. And like, you know, whenever you're doing anything, like the, the idea is always like the lower level is going to like kind of hide like much of the details and give you kind of like a much more abstracted uh, presentation as far as like what's going on. Right, right. Um, okay. And so I think that pretty much answers that question. How about now Neutrino? So that's BIP 157 and BIP 158. Um, I suppose before we get into this, can you maybe just give an overview on what Neutrino is and what problem it's solving for the non-technical people? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So Neutrino is basically a new kind of like light client or SV mode, SPV mode for Bitcoin. So, you know, typically the, the version that people are using right now on their phones it came out maybe like around like 2013 or so. That's like BIP 37, right? The way BIP 37 worked, they basically did something, uh, put all your addresses in something called like a Bloom filter, which is, which is this kind of like probabilistic data structure meaning that like sometimes it's going to tell you something is in there, but it may not actually be in there, right? So what the, what the BIP37 nodes do, they basically send this Bloom filter off to, to the full node, and then the full node for every single block can kind of like check against the Bloom filter to see if an address is maybe yours and then send you the entire block. This has some issues because like all of a sudden now you're giving, like you're more or less giving all your addresses to the full node, and they can do things like kind of like get several of these Bloom filters and intersect them to kind of like more, more um, you know, effectively figure out what, what your addresses are. The other thing that was an issue with BIP37 is that like actually caused a lot of strain on full nodes, right? So there are a bunch of kind of like nuisance DOS tags that you can do you could basically have like a bloom filter that matches everything and cause the full node to always you know, send every single block, right? And so at that point, like the full node also have, had like a bunch of state for each client, meaning that every single client they connected to it had to have more and more shit that went on, you know, further and further. And just generally, like 37 has been proven that like it's very, very you know, difficult to kind of like manage the filters themselves, right? So they, the idea was that the full, the clients would themselves kind of like manage their false positive rate of the filters and tune them, you know, more or less depending on what, uh, you know, uh, actually going on. But I think in practice, none of the implementation actually did that effectively. And, uh, you know, they had some issues with that. So what Neutrino is, uh, is based on this like weight, like this old post, um, I guess it came out in like 2016 by this kind of like a non, uh, you know, uh, post on the Bitcoin mailing list called the BFD. And the idea there, which I think was also developed in kind of like an IRC of Bitcoin Wizards uh, a few times in the past, the idea was kind of like to flip it, right? Rather than you giving the full node a filter, the full node gives you a filter, right? And the filter basically contains uh, information about like what addresses or, you know, outputs may be in that block. So that's what Neutrino is, right? So what it is that every single block, we can download a filter. And we can check that filter locally to see if there are any of our addresses in that filter. And then we download the block itself. The cool thing about this is that I can like download the block and filter from two two distinct different nodes, right? Or I can even download the block, from, you know, maybe using a little more kind of fancy cryptography in a way that allows me to, uh, you know, indistinguishably fetch the block itself. And this is really cool because all of a sudden you can use this for a lot of other things. For example, like your rescans in, uh, you know, in different full nodes, typically they actually like have to like read the entire block and scan everything for the addresses. Instead, they can actually just read these filters and check them themselves, which makes it a lot more faster. I think it's just like more, a much better way to kind of like build applications on top of Bitcoin. Because all of a sudden now I have this filter and this filter, you know, typically most applications, you know, as far as like contracts with Bitcoin, like you need to know if something happened in a block, right? And with the filter, you can effectively find out if something happened in a block or not because you download the filter, you can check it there and it's fine. And like, uh, uh, yeah, so that's kind of like an overview of, um, Neutrino. Yeah, right, right. And then my understanding is that Neutrino is now in 
LND and Lightning App Alpha for Testnet. Yep. Has the use of it been successful in Testnet? Uh, yeah. So I think people are like, we like a Testnet because all of a sudden, like, you don't really need a full node because, like, otherwise you need to, like, you know, maybe wait several hours, you know, six, seven plus hours. You have a really good computer to download the entire blockchain. And obviously, then, you know, you have like a lot of space applications there too. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention, one of the reasons that we actually went you know, in the path of Neutrino is that Bit37 has like a feature, has like, you know, a bug, you can say, where the photo can actually like lie by omission, meaning that an event happens, but it won't really tell you about that event, right? So typically, maybe, uh, you know, if you're doing like regular wallet, that's not so bad because that's kind of like, well, you, you have some money there, but you don't really know about it, maybe you find out later. In the case of Lightning, when you need to kind of like act on events on the blockchain in a, in a timely manner, if the phone number like kind of like censors you or kind of like blindsides you as far as notification, that may cause you to kind of like miss an event, you know, as far as like a breach something else that, that happened there. But yeah, I mean, so, so right now it's on testnet. Uh, people are using on testnet, uh, using like LND, it's built into LND. Also, like, or, uh, uh, we also use BTCD to kind of like actually implement, implement the PDP protocol on it itself. Uh, and I think the main thing is that, you know, you can really get, you can sync pretty, pretty quickly and get up to speed in the network, you know, uh, in a timely manner. And this is, I think this is what people are going to be using primarily as far as like end users on kind of like their phones and, uh, and their laptops, right? So it's a case where right now it's mostly kind of advanced users because they need to like, you know, be able to kind of sort of full node and also kind of like monitor the full node. But once you get the out there on mainnet and beyond, then it's going to be as easy as kind of like downloading an application on your desktop or on your mobile phone. And then at that point, I think like the fun really begins because at that point, like people can ship more, ship applications more easily because all of a sudden now they have like a wider user base. And also, there's kind of like less maintenance on their end as far as like phone nodes or whatever. Yeah. And then do you foresee Neutrino-style wallets becoming the norm for mobile wallets? Or are there any other negative trade-offs associated with it? Uh, I, I think they may. Because like in my opinion, like I think it's much, much simpler than actually coding up with 37, right? Because like, like I mentioned with 37, you have to do kind of like active management of your um, of your filter on the client side in order to, to ensure kind of like you, you're managing your false positive rate effectively. And also on the full node, there's a lot of work you need to do as far as like, you know, tracking filters for every single tra- folks, every single client updating the filter and things like that. So I think uh, on a whole code-wise, it's much simpler. But like you were saying, you know, there are some drawbacks, of course, everything has drawbacks. One of the, one of the drawbacks is that like the, the, you'll have like, you know, higher bandwidth users uh, than, than normal because typically with 37, you're only actually downloading kind of like a Merkle root of the, of the transaction from the full node, which can be pretty compact, right? Uh, you know, but for Neutrino, you're actually going to get the entire block. So it's not as bad because, like, you know, with SegWit, there's something where you can actually get a block without the witness data, meaning you, you can get a block without all the signatures, which can be kind of like, you know, a large portion of the block. This makes the blocks a lot lighter. Maybe you can download maybe like, you know, 60 or 70% of the block versus the entire block itself. One of the kind of like drawbacks of Neutrino is that like, we don't actually get unconfirmed transactions, right? Because we're always, you know, um, getting filters from actual blocks, we don't know that a transaction is in the mempool that you can that you can actually get validate. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, as a live client, you weren't even really able to validate that, that an unconfirmed transaction was actually valid, right? Because you didn't really have the UTXO set. So I think it's more of a thing where it's kind of like a more of like a user experience thing where people are typically used to whenever, whenever they get someone sent, uh, you know, a payment on their phone, they say, okay, boom, there it is. Like I, I have it going on there. So one of the things where we, we can add this onto Neutrino as well, just by, just by kind of like uh, either fetching a single transaction or this idea that I guess I just haven't really talked about millions yet. You can, you can kind of get like a stream of just kind of like the address and the amount from a full node of every single thing in their mempool. And at this point, you, you'd be able to effectively filter this out and at least, you know, have like a UI indicator that, okay, boom, you know, here is the, um, you know, here's the payment that you've been receiving. I see. So if I understand you correctly, it's Neutrino style mobile wallets will definitely show you all your confirmed transactions yep. that have been sent to you. Yep. But as they currently exist, if it's an unconfirmed transaction that has been broadcasted, but not necessarily confirmed into a block, yep. that will not show in your Neutrino style wallet. That's true. However, as I understand it, you're saying there are ways to try and mitigate that also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there's ways we can do it on top of it to get that. But I think was, you know, for our use case, we don't really care about things in the mempool because the mempool you know doesn't exist and you only care about blocks. And so it's also like kind of very difficult for you to kind of like 
uh, try to like spend things in the mempool because it could be double spent. There could be other things like that. But once you're in a block and you have some confirmations, it's a lot easier, right? Uh, but in, in the future, right, I, right, I think, I see. yeah. So I feel like to me, in my opinion, kind of like unconfirmed transactions in a wallet are really just more of like a UX thing, right? People want to kind of like have like the thing, okay, well, like an instant experience where you maybe onboard someone to, to, uh, to Bitcoin. They say, okay, well, like, you know, it arrived like right there on my phone. We can emulate that, you know, via other mechanisms, but then obviously we also have lightning for these kind of like instant payments in the future. Right, right. And then do, are there any other reasons or any, basically, are there any reasons that Neutrino technology would be difficult to implement into all the other mobile wallets? Or do you think that's, it's just going to come over time? Uh, I think it may come over time. It's one of those things where it's like, we'll see kind of like how Bit37 and, you know, 157, 158 uh, emerge. So, you know, some people are like on the network right now even disable Bit37 altogether because it was seen in the past that maybe some agencies were using this to kind of like, you know, try to probe your your, your node for their mempool or even kind of like for de-anonymization de- uh, attempts. So, so some of the places basically have like a flag to even turn Bit37 altogether. So I think that maybe people people will switch over if they're, you know, comfortable with the trade-offs of, uh, of Neutrino itself. But like, like I was saying, I think from a code perspective, it's, it's a good bit simpler because there's less kind of like active management it's another thing where like right now we're, we're kind of like in the first stage of deployment of neutrino where you basically get like the filter and you kind of like get more or less like like a committed history from every single one of your peers about the kind of like um validity of that filter in the future that may actually be committed into a bitcoin block similar to the way we have like a commitment for you know for all the segment witness data so it could be the case that like rather than like using this kind of like thing on the side to kind of like uh you know distinguish uh invalid uh, filters from not you get it in the block which gives you which gives you a high level of security Right, right. Yeah, this, this is, there's a lot. And it's, it's obviously, this is quite difficult for me to follow along. And, uh, yeah, but uh, definitely very interesting stuff. Thank you. Yeah. So what's at the, what would you say is at the top of your wish list for changes that you would like merged into Bitcoin Core? Ooh, I've got a lot. Um, uh, so, I mean, I probably like one of the things that like probably like lowest hanging fruit, which I think does a lot before kind of like off-chain protocols in general is a uh, SIG hash no input, which is a way to kind of like allow, you know, signatures to be a little more liberal. So basically the way right now signatures work typically, people use something called SIG hash all, which basically says, you know, I'm signing all of the inputs and all of the outputs and, you know, their output of value and everything else. The idea of that, like, you know, if someone took your transaction and modified it in any way, the signature would be invalid. So this, this is like a pretty big thing because otherwise... Someone can take your transaction, modify the output value, or even stick in their address, and all of a sudden you send money to them, right? That, that's why SIG hash all is kind of like the most conservative one people use generally. But there are other SIG hash flags that maybe can be used for other things, right? For example, I probably one of the you know, use case people know about SIG hash flags, like maybe back in like 2014, 2015, when Mike Curry make this thing called Lighthouse, which is a way you can kind of like do like a crowdsource, you know, uh, you know, crowd crowdfunding type thing on Bitcoin itself. And that you SIG hash single and anyone can pay, which basically let people kind of like, co- you know, um, collaboratively make like a much, much more larger transaction. So no input is basically like, you know, taking everything back and saying, you know, I really only want to just sign, uh, I want to give you a signature and it's valid as long as the witness is satisfied, which means I can, I can pull money out. This is cool because all of a sudden now, like typically the way when you're making contracts on Bitcoin, you're kind of like doing more or less kind of like nested transactions and those nested transactions, you know, spend on, depend on another transaction before them. If that other transaction is kind of like broken and modified in any way, then you can't really pull them in effectively. But now, take us no input basically opens things up to, to, for you to do a lot of really cool things. Probably the most thing I'm really excited for with no input are basically, you know, better ways to be doing fees, things like L2 needs them. Uh, also, like, there are a number of things you can do with, like, kind of like multi party channels, which I talked about in Scaling Bitcoin, that are only really possible once you have no input. Uh, so I think it's one of those things where it's like a very, very small change to the system. But in my opinion, the, the things you can do really, really blow up once you actually have that change 
uh, you know, in there, which I'm really looking forward to. Other things I'm looking forward to are uh, something called kind of like Texagon stack, which is the ability for you to check like an arbitrary signature on in the script itself, in the Bitcoin script itself, which is pretty cool. Because all of a sudden, let's say I can make I can make like an address, a special address that, that like um you know maybe I can I can send with my key, but if I if I if you give me like a key from yours and I, I can like sign that key, I can basically delegate that amount to you. You can do a number of cool things, kind of like lottery protocols, like micropayments, uh you know probabilistic payments, uh you know oracles, you know, delegation things like that. With Sagash, with uh, Sagash, uh Sorry, with checking on stack. But I mean, beyond that, there are a number of other things, but I feel like these are the things that kind of like are really, I think people generally agree that they're good ideas and they're also like pretty small changes uh, to the system uh, itself. Okay, so what service or product would you like to see built on top of Lightning Network or using LND? Oh, cool. Yeah, there are a lot, actually. I mean, so I think one of the most impressive, impressive things over the past year or so has been like all the developers building on LND. But like they've been building like a really, lot of really cool things, you know, different, different hackathons. There's like the Chainco residency. There's other also kind of like all the Lightning Hack Days going along right now. Uh, probably like one of the cool, th- one of the things that I thought about like a, like a, like a while back, which someone has built now, which I'm really excited about, uh, is basically kind of like a Chrome extension uh, that uses LND to ex- obtain macaroons to send, you know, to allow like different websites to, to more or less kind of like have like a very seamless user, user experience, right? So rather than like you, you know, clicking like upload on Reddit, like you go in your wallet, clicking OK, you basically just click click the upload and the payment happens in the background, right? So I think that's a really cool thing as far as like UX within the system because it really lowers kind of like the cognitive burden of doing micropayments. Because rather than like, you know, you approving every single payment that's happening, which, you know, can be pretty taxing, you you can maybe set like a budget or something like that or give like a particular node some other, um, uh, you know, kind of capabilities. Another thing that I'm pretty excited for self-building eventually, which I gave a talk on uh, maybe in like 2016 or so, something I called like HTLC Dash, which was basically a way to, um, you know, so basically whenever you're shooting a video on kind of like YouTube, or like some other thing, they basically have this kind of like adaptive streaming protocol, which means that like you know, anytime your, your quality dips low, that's maybe because like your bandwidth was, was getting choked up, or maybe it can kill 1080p. So the idea is basically to like, you know, kind of like layer lighting payments on top of that, where maybe I would pay you less for a 480p versus a 1080p video. You could also do it in a way where every single chunk that you give me is actually an HTLC within the system itself, right? So I, I'm paying for the next 30 seconds at a time. I'm paying for those 30 seconds within Lightning itself, which is pretty cool thing, because now like it's kind of like fixed, solved like a fair exchange problem. So at that point, you can have like effectively like streaming videos or podcasts or movies or whatever else, you know, pay, pay for over Lightning by the minute or by the second or whatever, which I think is a pretty cool thing there. So I think once people kind of like get in the realm of doing kind of like really cool streaming activities, maybe I'm like, you know, getting my paycheck streamed to me, you know, by the minute, or maybe I'm kind of like, you know, streaming some of the video. I think it's a pretty cool use case that I'm, that I'm excited for. And that also really combines with, uh, you know, other kind of like UX enhancing things like, uh, you know, Jewel, the Chrome extension and other things like that. I guess another thing that I think is pretty cool is kind of like gaming in the context of Lightning. So you can kind of like, you know, either accept payments for, for your game or you can sell kind of like a, like a cool premium sticker for your game or you can even like, uh, you know, in, in-game payments. So I can maybe like, you know, have like a, you know, some gold or whatever that I buy for Lightning or maybe when, when, when I like, you know, beat the boss that gives me some payments or something like that within itself. So I think that's a pretty cool use case that I'm looking forward to as well. Yeah, so it looks like there's, you know, potentially a lot of different business models that can be enabled with Lightning. And as you mentioned, streaming on demand, gaming, all sorts of new services that could really, well, we'll see, but it may help reinvent the internet as we know it and reduce some of the reliance on advertising and clickbait. Yeah, and also just kind of like removing a lot of these intermediaries, like, you know, like Stripe or whoever else, where it's like, you know, I think one of the things that people kind of like underestimate is that, you know, like when you have Lightning, it's easier than ever for you to like just put something up on the internet and accept or send payments, right? Before this, it was it was more difficult because you basically have to go to some other third-party provider. You have to kind of like give them your credit card information and do all this KYC and everything else, which is pretty limiting, and or PayPal, whatever else. And at any given time, they can also shut down your account, right? With Lightning, it's like, well, I just have like my program. I put it up on the internet. 
I have my note. I say, hey, you know, let me get some connections. All of a sudden, I can like, you know, I can accept payments on the internet with, with very, very, with very little cost. The margin of cost is also very, very low because we have these great open source tools that are being put out, you know, put out by different developers. And all of a sudden, now like this has never been possible. This hasn't been possible before because now the barriers to entries are much, much lower. So I think like there were many things people maybe wanted to do, but they couldn't do in the past because of the legacy system. But now the lightning is there. It's a lot more open. It's transparent. You know, there's, there's a spec. There's open source implementations. I think now we're really starting to see people kind of like, you know, putting these things together and really having these cool models that, you know, couldn't exist before, but are able to exist now due to lightning. Yeah, fantastic stuff. Yeah. Um, one other topic that we actually we, we we touched on this briefly on that day when uh, you came to Sydney. Yeah. Um, but we were touching on this concept of how Lightning's spec might be a little more, let's say, well defined, such that you can have multiple implementations. On, you know, on Lightning, yeah. but if you compare to Bitcoin, it's sort of like people are much more, let's say, reliant on Bitcoin Core as being the kind of standard bearer. Mm-hmm. Um. What are your thoughts there in terms of sort of the comparison there in terms of how Lightning Network works versus Bitcoin's kind of consensus? Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, so like, you know, uh, Lightning itself is like an overlay network. So basically, it depends on layer one on Bitcoin. Well, I, I have opinions about layers and things like that. But, you know, it depends on Bitcoin to kind of like be like kind of like the robust, you know, core to like actually... Um, uh, you know, adjudicate any any sort of like disagreement on on the like, the base network itself. I, I I feel like probably like kind of like the main point is that like on Bitcoin, if you have a consensus fork, you may actually kind of like lose money, right? Someone may double spend you, whatever else, and like and the risk is like much much higher. But in Lightning, if two you know no disagree on like what the current commitment state in state is, well that's fine. They can just go to the they can go to the blockchain and kind of like hold up the channel, right? I feel like the risk of disagreement on the protocol level for Bitcoin versus Lightning, uh, you know, it's, it's just like it's really on a different level because in Bitcoin, you know, it's, it's a lot more it's a lot more dire because all of a sudden you can have all the double spend attacks and like exchange or whatever else. We're, you know, we're seeing all this stuff kind of play out with all these you know, altcoins doing kind of like squabbling amongst each other. I feel like Lightning is it's just a lot, it's a lot more flexible because there, there are you know, a bunch of different types of updates within Lightning itself. I'd say maybe there's probably like three or four different types of updates. One of the updates is, is like an end-to-end update. So, for example, like AMP is an end-to-end update, right? For AMP, only the sender and receiver need, need to actually upgrade for, for us to actually use the protocol, right? Which is pretty cool. So all of a sudden now we can – this is pretty flexible because all of a sudden you know, developers can uh, be very, very creative. Because all of a sudden they don't really need every single node on, on, on the network to understand this new protocol. Then there's kind of like a, a link level update, right? So let's say like we had a new channel and like there's someone made a new channel type, you know, uh, you know, like the fifth channel iteration or whatever else, right? They can start to use that channel on the network today as long as they have the same end-to-end HTLC that actually works in the network right now, right? And then then that brings us to kind of like the the final uh, you know upgrade type in my opinion, which is kind of like a network level upgrade, right? So let, let's say we were to move to a different hash function within Lightning. Right, right now we're using SHA two, you know, I guess a combo of um, of SHA two and RIPMD. If, if we move to a different hash function, all of a sudden we would we'd actually need to kind of like you know fragment the network because now you can't you know route any on under any single path, right? And this is something that we may do in the future because we'll be moving to kind of like a you know a Schnorr ECSA based HTLC versus a uh, the regular kind of like hash based HTLC. So I think it's a lot more flexible because you have these different upgrades sides. The main thing is that you don't really need global consensus on every single change, right? Or global consensus on like, you know, what the current state is. That's the big thing that makes, you know, alternative implementations pretty difficult in Bitcoin. That's why people, you know, pretty squeamish when people start, start to talk about, you know, sort of new implementation because they're kind of cognizant of that risk at that level. Fantastic insights. Um, okay, how about things at Lightning Labs? Uh, do you have any updates on what's going on with Lightning Labs? What to expect coming up? Oh yeah, no, there's like a ton of cool things. Like you know, I guess we don't really talk about it much because we we're kind of like really like really heads down. We kind of like try to ignore all the noise out there as whatever's going on, blah blah blah. We just really try to like you know continue to continue to execute what we're going on. But I feel like you know the highlights that's coming up is obviously you're going to tune on mainnet. That's coming pretty soon, uh, and that's going to be in a, a, a few different flavors. One of the one of the flavors is going to be like you know on our desktop application, which right now 
Child on Testnet, which is being worked on by two of our engineers, uh, Val and Tangrid. And then we'll also have actually mobile coming out pretty soon as well, which would be on both, you know, initially on iOS and then also on Android at that point. And I think we're doing, we're doing a lot of work on kind of like the backend in terms of the kind of like, you know, improving the backbone of the network. And these are things like uh, what kind of like Alex Bosworth is working on as far as like different uh, t- uh, types of doing probing in order to ensure we have like reliable nodes to connect, our, connect to our users to. We're doing a lot of things in terms of like, uh, you know, revamping autopilot, which is right pretty basic right now to have like, you know, taking a lot more different heuristics and like would be a lot more intelligent. Um, there's a number of other things we're doing as well. Like, uh, for example, like we kind of recently got kind of like an end-to-end test on watchtowers. Uh, like the other night, I think last night, which is something people people, people have been pretty excited about because all of a sudden now you can you know have a little more assurance as far as taking onto the network. We'll have that, you know, rolling out pretty soon here too. Uh, and then you know, on top of that, we have a number of kind of like cool things we haven't really talked about yet coming out as far as like, you know, additional kind of like added things on either LOD or the application side of things as well. Uh, but yeah, I think there's a lot of really cool things coming off right now. Some of them, you know, will be unveiled in like the next, uh, you know, month or few weeks, which I'm, which we're pretty excited about. Fantastic. And uh, in terms of hiring, uh, are you guys still looking for, you know, new developers or any other talent? Uh, yeah, you know, I guess we're always hiring. Right now, we, I think we've, we've been kind of like, uh, like really like hands, heads down, kind of like, you know, to ensure we can ship these things, uh, you know, like early next year or so. But, you know, at that point, like maybe like uh, earlier next year, we'll be hiring across kind of like front end. You know, we we'll always need you know, protocol developers, people that are actually be working on the kind of the core protocol uh, that know Bitcoin and um, you know and aligning pretty well. We'll also be looking for kind of like in the future more be more kind of like SRE or like uh, DevOpsy types once we actually start to build out some of these kind of like systems that we're working on there. But but yeah, I mean we're we're definitely continually hiring. Uh, uh, you can check out our website, uh, Lightning.engineering, uh, and then you know the careers page and team page will have different uh, listings on there too. But I feel like one of the main things that I think one of the most advantageous things about like actually like running like an open source project as a company is that many of our uh, hires actually like maybe like four of them were actually sourced from either contributions on LND or or our application. Right? It's pretty cool because at that point, like like you know, like you know, someone putting up like a really really good PR demonstrates a lot of things as far as like their abilities to to communicate effectively. You know, receive feedback. Can they use Git well? What's the code style like testing and things like that? So, result, I think we can kind of like you know save a lot of time on a on uh, recruiting and kind of like on interviewing because we have like L and D in our other open source projects, right? So the thing is like you know someone can't fake a good PR. It's, it's like proof of work, right? It's like pow. Like you put a, you put up a good PR. It's like all of a sudden you're like wow, like they're actually serious about this. They're really committed. So I think that's like a really cool thing that like many of our uh, hires actually you know were former contributors to L and D. So yeah, contributing to L and D is definitely you know gateway great to get noticed. Uh, and we've had a lot of cool people coming up. I think L and D uh, is just really continuing to grow and more and more i think right now we have like 3.3k stars on github which is like a good bit like i think it's it's like probably add like 2k stars this year alone uh so i think it's like a really cool project I, it's probably maybe one of the fastest growing like open source projects like in the bitcoin space right now i think because we have like tons of contributors and every single release we have new contributors which is like you know pretty great okay and just lightning network more broadly what's the outlook for lightning network over say the next year uh, yeah, so I think over the next year or so, we'll, we'll be, you know, rolling out a lot of these changes in terms of, uh, you know, the 1.1 version of the specification, which includes, you know, anticipated features like dual funding, splicing, AMP, a bunch of like, you know, really cool things on protocol level as far as like, you know, better error support and things like that. Uh, so I think over the next year, like, uh, the main thing will be kind of like improving kind of like the backbone of the network. You know, like I was talking about, like, ensuring that we have like pretty reliable nodes. We'll be like, you know, getting a lot more kind of education out there. The thing is, the, is the state right now where there may be like a few Redner operators that really know what they're doing, while others are kind of like really spinning up nodes, just like sitting it there. So we're getting a lot more guides out there to actually ensure people actually know what's going on, what different knobs are uh, going on there. I think as time goes on as well, like, you know, the education spread, spread amongst Ragnar operators, people will have like 
a better idea of like what it takes to be like a Reinhardt operator uh, themselves in order to actually be doing things effectively. I think over the next year, we'll also see a bunch of, people, uh, you know, a bunch of work on kind of the UX front of things. So like I was saying, once splicing is out, the UX becomes a lot easier. So I've said now we can, we can show a single balance on the, on the wallet rather than like maybe two or three balances uh, at that point. And I think, you know, as we go on, you know, the network will become, become more and more reliable because people are able to more uh, effectively manage their capital. And I think we'll also see a number of like cool different things coming out as far as like, you know, people using the network in, in cool ways. The other day I saw this pretty cool uh, demo. It was like, it was kind of like a chess thing where it's like PVP chess. We can kind of like bet on a game and like, like have that be dispersed uh, out there. But yeah, those are things that I'm pretty excited about. I think all, all that kind of like, you know, becomes a lot more, uh, you know, uh, easy once we have like really good client implementations out there on like the light clients on the desktop. And then also once the infrastructure of the writing uh, side gets a lot more, uh, you know, is a lot better. I'm so excited. There's really so many cool things going oh, on. With yeah, this there's, stuff. there's, there's so much stuff. It's like, you know, like I have to keep up with this stuff and then also like company stuff and then even like, you know, Bitcoin stuff. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of news going on every day on Twitter. I see new things and like, you know, people in IRC on Slack. Everyone's like just like really, really excited. It's like one of the things that lightened up from Bitcoin is kind of people kind of like, you know, maybe got like more reinvigorated by kind of like application level development on Bitcoin itself. Whereas before it was, you know, pretty difficult to kind of like do development on Bitcoin on your own because it's very, very low level. There were really many good documents documentation maybe there weren't really you know uh libraries in your language but with lnd because we have uh the system which basically like lets you you know script lnd in effectively any language all of a sudden it's a lot easier for you to kind of like to jump in and actually make make contribution and i think the developer network is like growing a lot i would say maybe like lightning itself has contributed to kind of like the growth of the bitcoin developer base you know this year versus anything else we've seen a lot of you know people you know popping up to do things like training like on like on chain code, people are just kind of like doing different hack day stuff and like just really getting out there. People are just really just kind of like self organizing, which is great. You know, we put out implementation, there's some docs, you know, maybe there's IRC or whatever else, but we're really passionate about, you know, moving stuff forward. And that's like, you know, really energizes me myself. Yeah, it's just all so exciting. Um, so look, I think it, we're pretty much getting to the end of the time. So if you've got any last closing comments or just want to tell people where to find you and where to follow you, uh, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, I mean, so you guys know uh, I'm Roast Beef on Twitter, GitHub, just about everything else. You can find me on, uh, you know, L&D on our IRC, IRC channel. We also have like a developer Slack, which is like really, really like high quality. There's probably maybe like three, 4,000 developers. People were kind of like, you know, there's no trolling, there's no BS. People just come up there and they want to like really just like write code and kind of experiment with the applications themselves. And I say keep on the lookout for uh, the drop of the desktop application, some of the kind of like, you know, different services that we'll, we'll be coming out with uh, on Lightning in like the next, uh, you know, few months or so, which I think people will be, will be really excited about. Fantastic. Well, look, Laulu, it's it's been a pleasure to chat with you. I've I've had I've had trouble. I've had to really struggle to try and keep up with you because it's uh, it's quite a <laughs> quite a, a technical and uh, uh, difficult uh, conversation. But at the same time, so fascinating, and it's very clear to me that you guys, you know, when I met you and Connor, that you guys are really, you know, you're really working hard and you're really um you're really kicking goals. So great work with that, and uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Check out the show notes for this episode on my website, stefanlevera.com. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode and please share the podcast with your friends. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at stefanlevera. Thanks for listening.